Hey everybody, we are back. You are listening to Smart Guy, Dumb Guy. I'm your host and dumb guy, Christian Serge. And as always, with us, our co-host, the beloved, the reverend author, the smart guy, (laughs) Johnny Morrison. That's nice, beloved. Um, I'll take that over any of the other honorifics that I received, loved. Um, Hey everybody, thank you for listening. If you're new or you just forgot what we do because we've been on a break, then each week and now for the next 23 minutes, we're going to have a conversation about culture, current events, politics from both sides of the intellectual spectrum with some wiggle room in the middle. Wow. Today, the wiggle room, we have to talk a little bit about it after the election. We've Mm -hmm. been gone for a couple of weeks and there is a lot to talk about. Yeah. I was thinking about that as we were prepping for this recording I was like there's what do we talk about because there is so many things to talk about well I mean I've got toilet paper and I have uh-huh. food uh-huh. <laughs> and we haven't we don't have COVID but we know a lot more people who've had it now uh, yep. my entire uh, my son's entire one side of his family has all had COVID wow. nobody has died and uh, it's just been a lot more cases. The whole state looks like just COVID cases are running wild. Mm-hmm. Masks are going crazy. Mm-hmm. Nobody's conceding to the election. Well, mm-hmm. Trump is not conceding to the election. Republicans aren't uh, saying any word about it. Or if they are saying it, it's very vague words about it. I don't know. What, what's what been your take the last couple of weeks? Yeah. So, so similar kind of experience like Utah's COVID cases are just so high. And on a couple of days ago... Governor Herbert gave us like maybe the most serious restrictions and mandates that we've had for the next two weeks. No private gatherings of any kind is what they said. Um, wow. Yeah. Pretty crazy for Utah, for a conservative state. And the way he did it was so funny, like talking about mask wearing, like he compared it to wearing your seatbelts. It was like, you could just tell he was trying to like really coax people into the conversation around COVID prevention. Wow. It's interesting though, you know, I, I think we're going to talk about this in one of the in the conversation that you have, but it's this is a fascinating to moment to watch ideologies, political perspectives, worldviews collide and unravel. And it feels like we are very far away from any sense of collective truth. Boy, you, you couldn't have said that better. I think that's been, I mean, in my opinion, that has been this administration's focus is mm. to deny fact mm. and to make truth only what they say it is. And then to watch 70 million people think that what a political leader says is true is disheartening. It's uh, infuriating. And frankly, it's ridiculous. Mm. There's an article in the New York Times uh, that talks about Trump's refusal to secede. To concede, not secede. <laughs> I guess I wish he would succeed, secede the Union like the Confederate States did when Abraham Lincoln became president. But no, his refusal to concede. I think it's a very interesting experiment. This article talks about a thought experiment. Uh, political scientist Brendan Nyhan asked the question, what would you say if you saw this kind of thing happen in another country? For example... If there was a president of another country lost an election and he refused to concede defeat, instead he lied about the vote count, he was saying, stop the, stop counting votes or I'm going to lose, you know, stop counting the legitimate votes, you know, mm-hmm. um, then he filed lawsuits 
to have ballots thrown out, even in states where they're like, hey, if it's postmarked, our state law is, if it's postmarked by the date, that we have to wait four or five days to count these votes, right? Like like in Nevada. And I, I had a, a conversation with a friend today. I was like, hey, some states have really interesting laws. It's not a federal law when you can vote, uh, what kind of votes are counted. But typically the laws are... Uh, there to take voters who are poor, like uh, in Georgia, right? If you or no, in Ohio, if you don't have a state driver's license or state ID, you can't vote. And I mm-hmm. think that's ridiculous because it's just poor people who can't afford a state ID or mm-hmm. don't have one, they can't vote. So here we have again mm-hmm. voter suppression in that way. So if you uh, see that a president refused to concede after he lost an election. He lied about the vote count. Then he filed lawsuits to have ballots thrown out. And then he put pressure on all of his loyalists and other Republicans to back him up. And then he used the power. This is the most important thing. He used the power of his own government to prevent a transition of power from starting. Because he's he's not allowing Biden to do any briefs. Mm -hmm. He's not allowing him to do any kind of transitioning whatsoever. I don't know. Mm-hmm. When I think about that kind of situation, I feel like we're losing our freedoms. I feel like that democracy is really under attack. And we've been hearing that a little bit, but it really is under attack. Hmm. I think that the evidence is so overwhelming that there's not voter fraud and that Biden won the majority vote just like overwhelmingly. So Biden should be president of the United States. But I, the, one of the things you were saying made me ask, maybe think of this question, which is um, there was some recent data from Gallup about comparing how Democrats view the election right now versus how Republicans viewed it in 2016. And the stats are almost entirely inversed. And I think it's an interesting thing. Hmm. Not to say that we're not, not, I'm not trying to undermine what is happening, but it is fascinating and challenging to me. So, in 2016, 75% of Democrats believed that the election was rigged, and that's how Donald Trump won. Hmm. And in 2020, around 75% of Republicans believed that the election is rigged, and that's how Joe Biden won. I, these kind of statistics, they melt my face because, <laughs> like, that is the question. How, like, I feel like I am so sure mm-hmm. that Trump is an imbecile that he's a dishonorable man, that he marginalizes people, that he is uh, demonizes people, that he inspires hate, encourages violence. I am mm-hmm. so sure of that. And mm-hmm. then I see 70 f- million people vote for this guy. The question is, how do I see the other side when mm-hmm. it seems so clear to me? Yeah. Yeah, there is a... <clears throat> I'm so glad that's the question you asked. I was watching... Do you ever watch Stephen Colbert, um, like a late show? Yeah, sometimes. Yeah. So I really like Colbert. I think he's generally very funny and kind of like a genuine human. And I was watching his coverage after the election. So Biden has declared the winner. So it's like Tuesday of this week or something. Hmm. Uh, I guess last a week ago when you're listening to this for the first time. And he said something that I have, I have thought about so much since then. He says that the last four years were like a debate with the enlightenment. And what he's saying is like, that Donald Trump, it's kind of what he's saying, what you said at the beginning, like Donald Trump is quote unquote, an attack on facts. And we've been debating whether the enlightenment was like a good thing. But I think, I think that there is a secondary meaning to that question, that statement that Colbert is not intending, but is true, which is this, the last four years, 
have not been a debate about the Enlightenment. They have been the unraveling of the Enlightenment, mm. which has been happening for a hundred years, but now we're seeing it play out the most. And, and this is what I mean. I'll try to say it really simply. Like 50 years ago, we believed as a culture that truth was something. Yes. Like we believe that truth looked like a thing, that it acted like a thing, that it was knowable by certain means. The sky uh, is blue. Sure. And that we could know that by certain things, right? We all agreed yes. on, the, on the rules of the game and the game that was being played. Right. But what's happening, I think, now is not so much that we have less, quote unquote, truth. It's that two different communities and more used the same rules and got to different destinations at the end of it. And what we're realizing is like, maybe we never knew that, maybe everything that we thought was true was just a bunch of things that people agreed on and it wasn't actually true at all. And I think that's the issue. But I don't, I don't believe that there is no truth because like democracies fall on the fact that politicians decide what is true and that people believe that the politicians are telling the truth and that facts are not facts. Hmm. And that is a fact. Like over the last hundred years, there's like... 10 examples of democracies falling because we as a people did exactly that. The issue was, hey, we used these same things. We took a sample of the sky and we both uh, are saying it's a different color. And our politicians are saying, no, the sky's not blue, it's green. Mm -hmm. Am I making any sense? Mm -hmm. I don't like what you're saying is what I'm saying. <laughs> well, it's tricky because I think, like I am not trying to say that there is not something true but I am trying to say that I think what we all believe is true is far more complicated than we want it to be. Because what you just named, they're like, how do I see the other side? Because the other side, like I, like, so, so if I'm a Republican, like a really, a really, really conservative Republican, take like the most stereotypical person you can find, then I think that Biden and Pelosi are cynical assholes and they're only in this for power. They're only in this to manipulate people. They don't want to help people. Hmm. But if I'm a Democrat, I don't see them that way at all. Right. I see Donald Trump and uh, Mitch McConnell that way. And isn't that mm, fascinating? It is. And, it is. and the question isn't whether or not they are cynical. The question is, is that it's fascinating that that's the perception we have of both teams, that the politics that we participate in make enemies of everyone around us that isn't on our side. And even if the other people are doing bad things, it's like we can't actually see them in truth. We see them through a narrative. So how do I see... The other side, like uh, on Facebook and a friend of mine, I have been, I've been unfriending people on Facebook because I just can't handle the stupidity. Hmm. And then I've kind of retracted and like, okay, it's maybe it's not stupidity. Maybe it is, but I just, I can't affiliate. I don't, I, I, I can be real friends with them. I just can't be Facebook friends mm -hmm. because they'll post an article like uh, a friend of mine posted Kamala Harris wants to legalize prostitution. So I watched the video. I'm like, well, that's not it at all. Mm -hmm. Decriminalization, legalizing, uh, you know, like there's, it's a more complicated subject and maybe that's it. One, I feel like maybe one side is just looking at it in very simple terms and one side is looking at it in more critical thinking terms. And I'm not even labeling a side versus a side, but I'm, I'm labeling the idea that Maybe that's the issue is that we're using this, we're thinking we're using the same rules, but we're really not. Or one person is looking at it with the same rules without applying empathy. How do I understand the other side when mm -hmm. I feel like I'm so right? Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, I think that's the question because I, I do think that our politics, the the way it works is it wields us, it forms us into a group that has a lot of power and you have, groups have more power when they're against something, right? Mm. The New York Times did an article, this was in 2016, right after Donald Trump was elected, where they started writing about how the Democrats were becoming an oppositional party. And that's interesting because it was the same thing that the that had happened after Obama was elected and John Boehner was like, we're never going to pass Obama. Ed-. Like, so we're just, we're just watching this thing repeat over and over and over again. And power multiplies as you become oppositional towards something. And then you start to lose it a bit. And then you, it's like, yeah. you're just repeating the cycle. So I, I think that we, this is like an abstract answer, but we have to get out of, we have to get out of like the political system yeah. in order to like be with people. It's a problem. There are these free speech apps. I had a friend of mine, uh, she sent over a little message that said, hey, have you checked out Parler? Have you checked out Gab? This quote, free speech apps, where it's essentially Whoa. polarizing more people. Mm-hmm. And it makes me want to get on there and just start posting up all kinds of crazy stuff and be like, free speech, free speech, huh? Free speech, I can do free speech. Mm-hmm. Yeah, my understanding of Gab is that like Gab is like the the hotspot of like white supremacists and white nationalists. <laughs> I think that's that's essentially polarizing us more. It's getting us deeper yeah. into politics, mm-hmm. not pulling us out and getting on the human mm-hmm. level. Mm-hmm. Like today, I, I had a friend, of, uh, a friend of mine and ran into he and his daughter at Lowe's. And I kid you not, we didn't know what to say to each other. We didn't know what to say to each other. And it made me so sad. Mm-hmm. In fact, I've got to call him and be like, hey, I may not be your friend on social media, but I'm your friend in real life. And let's, let's come together on the things that matter. Mm-hmm. Let's not make this matter. Let's not be enemies over mm-hmm. an orange-faced, lying son of a bitch. Mm-hmm. Actually, I can't say that. Sorry. <laughs> Why did we really? It really. I don't know that that disrupts the enemy making machine. <laughs> I'm, just, I, I'm, I'm angry. I'm angry about yeah. it. I'm, I'm angry sure. uh, of the result of, of this. I'm angry at the result of dishonorable men in the uh, dishonorable white men in politics. Hmm. I'm angry and I, I don't like it. And I think if. If we really dig down deep, if the Supreme Court has to decide who becomes president, we've lost our democracy. We've lost our freedom because the judges, they are not voted for by and of the people. Mm. They are appointed by the president, right? And confirmed Mm -hmm. by not us. They're confirmed by our senators. So I just feel like there's a line that we draw. If it has to go there, we've dishonored democracy we've dishonored ourselves we've dishonored everything that we stand for the narrative Mm. that we believe in the the declaration of independence is not true the constitution does not apply when judges have to decide who's president Mm -hmm. (laughs) sure yeah i really appreciate how um mad you are i think that's challenging to me in some ways because i think i feel um cynical of the system at all like i think when you say if if judges elect if judges are the ones who determine whether or not biden or trump is our president and the system is broken my gut reaction is it is already fully broken Hmm. an electoral college system is fully broken a constitution written to preserve the rights of wealthy landowning white males was broke it was broken to begin with right like that's my so it's i like it's actually helpful to see you angry and be like 
it is broken and i'm like oh maybe that's challenging to me like i want to just be like yeah yeah uh totally broken burn it down (laughs) (laughs) it is broken and maybe that's why it's making me mad and and i'm not alone in this i know there are a lot of people who uh Mm -hmm. believe that it's broken on both sides i know that there are very smart people who believe that it's broken people who are mathematicians people who are uh college professors, people who write papers on it, people who study day in and day out. Mm-hmm. In fact, there's an article that talks a little bit about this. I think you brought this to the table. The article that you'll, you'll find in the show notes is from The Atlantic. It's a long article. I told Christian, you don't have to read it. Um, sounds like he did, though. But it's, it's more of an expose of a professor, and uh, he's originally an ecologist to become a mathematician. And, and the whole point of the article is that he can apply mathematics to history in order to predict the fall of nations and empires and that he's built this like very sophisticated technical algorithm that will consistently show uh how nations fall and the big the big like premise of it is that there is this kind of never-ending cycle of boom and then bust within Um, nations and America's one of those and nations all over history have been one of those that there's a boom and there's a bust and you can see the cycles of it. You can see the uh, signs of it. You can see evidence of it. And if you start to see it, we're headed towards uh, a boom. Uh, And I thought it was an interesting article in light of even the conversation we just had about like this moment in politics, but what the moment that we're in larger kind of says about American culture going forward. You always give me the longest damn articles. They're so long. And you know what? I did. I actually suffered through this one. And, and I have one criticism of this guy. Mm-hmm. Well, maybe two. Uh, he, I feel like he's very disconnected. He's in Connecticut. He doesn't ever like to see people. He mm-hmm. doesn't really believe in the human in mm-hmm. human triumph. Doesn't believe. Mm-hmm. I didn't get the sense that he believed in the human soul. Like... Like, there is some good in humans. He was like, no, humans are bad. I will stand here in the forest of Connecticut with the butterflies and the chipmunks and the squirrels and the bean beagle, the, the bean beetle that I've been, wrote a uh, yeah. master dissertation on. I know everything about it. He was very proud. He's like, I know everything about beetles, uh-huh. so I just decided to stop. So, I thought that was a weird moment that he said that out loud. He's like, I learned enough and I'm done. I was like, whoa, crazy. So what that says to me is... Number one, he does not have faith in humanity. And I, I didn't see any, like, if this article is going to be real, if it's going to be fact, where are his algorithms? Where yeah. are the tools? I didn't see any of the tools or predictions. They're like, he could be Nostradamus. Well, where are those yep. predictions? He's like, yeah, society's going to die. Well, you know what? People have been telling me that since, I don't know, in 1917, the the um, that one religious group thought the second coming had happened. Uh, mm-hmm. Jehovah's Witnesses. And they wrote this big letter that, you know, Jesus has come again and this is the end of times and 144,000 people are ascending into heaven. And if you're not one of those people who died, it's too late. You get to be servants and serve them food and warm decaf coffee. <laughs> yeah, that was my primary criticism of him. And we've talked about this on the show a bunch. There's this notion that expertise and algorithms and uh, the right approach and the right technique can solve every problem and that that's just a broken approach. And I actually think that what we were saying in the last conversation about the election and how the sides are too polarized, I think is actually the unraveling of that premise that you can have the right technique will lead you to the facts and yet it's getting us to different facts. 
So I think that's my big criticism of it as well. Like there's no technique, no equation that perfectly explains and solves the problems of our world. That's a, that's just a totally bullshit statement. But I didn't think that the thing that he was naming was interesting, which was like, what is the, the three major variables that he counted were the overproduction of elites, meaning like mm. Harvard education, uh, you're coming from money, you're getting a Harvard, yeah, you're giving an Ivy League education, but there's not enough actual opportunities for these like pseudo elites. And so then elites become what he called counter elites. They're like, and he was like, Trump is kind of one of these, like where he has all the elite credentials, but he doesn't get let into the elite circles. And so he sort of becomes a counter elite who is for the common people or Steve Bannon's the same way. Who's like a, you know, a wall street broker and then becomes for like regular folks, quote unquote. He's like, so if you have that, you have the overproduction of elites, no spots for elites. So they go to be regular people. And then the falling living standards of regular folks. He's like, that's the, that's the cesspit of <laughs> democratic destruction. That's the thing that does it. And I was like, well, that's no, I, don't, I kind of agree with that. That's a bad scenario. The cesspit. Hmm. Is it a cesspool or a cesspit? Probably a pool. <laughs> I like probably a pool, like an ocean, a cess lake at least. I like the cesspool that's in multiple pits. That's how I feel right now. I am really angry. To, I, I am having a hard time with you know Connecticut uh, mathematic man who hates humans and and, <laughs> and likens us likens us to a woodpecker that's come up with an ingenious way to stick our beak into a tree and eat a termite because it's our divine right. But I think the idea of this elite, our divine right. I feel like I've been there in the filming industry and the Reverend is calming me down. You know, <laughs> I did a lot of really high end projects throughout mm. my life and film and television. And then as equipment and software became easier to use and mm. more available to the less elite, if you couldn't afford the $50,000 camera or the $100,000 camera, um, you couldn't be part playing the same game I was, but uh, once equipment came down, and you were getting better imagery and better uh, imaging. It was a flood of people who thought they were elite. They're like, "Oh, my mm -hmm. mom bought me a red camera, and and now I'm a DP, and I know how to do all this stuff." And mm -hmm. so, yeah, I I was one of those, I guess you would call maybe elites, that came down the class to the common people. Mm -hmm. And it was kind of for the common people. And so, I mean, I at least get that point. Now I've, I feel like I've found a, a, a great home to hmm. take my eliteness and, and showcase it again. But uh, hmm. I don't know. I don't know where I'm, ra Did I'm you, rambling a bit. Do you watch SNL at all? I watched the Californians on SNL just recently. Okay. Did you see um, Chappelle's monologue post on Saturday? I didn't. It's, it's so, I mean, it's Chappelle. So if you have problems with Chappelle, like it's very Chappelle-y. Um, I like Chappelle quite a bit. I think that he names, I hadn't thought about it until you were talking in that story that you just told, but I think he names that and what's happening in this like equation, the overproduction of elites, the um, elites becoming counter elites and the falling livered standards. And he's talking about it with, he's like, 
white it's it's so beautiful i'm gonna butcher it but he's like white people basically need to learn from the black americans who have been suffering this reality forever because he's like he's like i'm watching he's like he lives in a small town now i think in ohio and he's like i'm watching and he's like he's like uh drug drug pandemics are are ruining small town communities there is no jobs so for the very first time ever white americans are seeing living standards go down uh there's less opportunities that creates resentment um it's not the same like their their plight is not the same as growing up black in america but he's like but if you've always lived here high and you're watching yourself slip down that creates resentment and that always explodes somewhere right Mm -hmm. and he's like naming it in the monologue and just the very like witty kind of brilliant Chappelle way aren't you writing a book about this kind of a dissonance and Tharsis <laughs> and hold on here. This sounds vaguely familiar. It is vaguely familiar. Yep. It's it's similar. It's I don't believe that you can apply a mathematic equation to it, but I do it is a similar concept. You're acting a little nervous. Did I call you out too much? No, no. Um, you know? So we'll see if that book ever gets published. I think this is the second time that you've mentioned it on the on the podcast, and so I feel like I just gotta know. I just gotta let everybody know that it's not it's not getting published yet. You know, so I gotta wait patiently for it. I am going to publish it if it doesn't get published. Damn it! <laughs> but yeah, I, I'm glad that you brought that up because the the question is like, what happens when a group of people feel, even if it isn't true, but if you feel pushed down and like the opportunities that you were promised in life are no longer available. It creates resentment and resentment builds until it someday explodes. Yeah. Well, and right now we have a lot of people to point it to. We Mm -hmm. have the entire other side because our political belief has been attached to our identity. Mm -hmm. And that's unfortunate. Like I'm even mm-hmm. experiencing a little bit of that. I've got to really pull it back and really question, does my political belief uh, match my identity or is it a part of my identity? Does it influence my identity? And I think mm-hmm. the answer should be no. Mm-hmm. I think that um, empathy, I think values should be part of my identity, not political parties. Mm-hmm. Yeah, beautifully said. Last words on Connecticut man, super elites. Well, from the guy who doesn't consider himself a super elite, but who is definitely a super elite, uh, I like his article. I think there's some good stuff in it. Um, but I think that the bigger thing is we as a we as an Americans, especially right now in the post the fallout of election and like the we don't know who's gonna concede, we all of that. Like in the fallout, I love what you said. Like, what does it look like to be a people of empathy? What does it look like to be a people who are embedded in real relationships? What does it look like to be a people who create space for something life-giving to happen around us as opposed mm. to being defined by politics? So mm. I kind of stole what you, some of the things you said, but I, I think that's a good last word. Dude, you're not a felon. You voted. You didn't steal anything. <laughs> Woo! Shots taken. <laughs> no, no. Uh, you always say it better than I do. I appreciate that. I last words about this guy and this election, and how do we see the other side when it seems so clear to us? I don't have the answer, other than mm-hmm. that. The values applying, you know, uh, unapplying our political party to ourselves and our identity. Mm-hmm. And that's really challenging to me. It's really hard. Mm-hmm. So good luck with it. Yeah. Get lo- good luck and get local. <laughs> get local. 
Well, everyone, that ends our episode of Smart Guy, Dumb Guy. Come back again next week if you like our conversations. But more than that, continue to have your own. Would you tell a friend about Smart Guy, Dumb Guy this week? We need your help. Please send us suggestions on what you'd like us to talk about and find out more about our world at smartguydumbguy.com. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks. You have been listening to a Smart Guy and a Dumb Guy production, a podcast exploring culture, current events, and politics from both sides of the intellectual spectrum. See you next time.